Good morning, folks, on this Palm Sunday. Many of you know that last weekend, our very own Dr. Jimmy Stewart led us as we, as a faith family, prayed for our nurses, our doctors, all of those public health officials. We lifted this up in prayer. We certainly should. If anything, our prayers and their fervency should increase for those women and men serving us so well in these times. I do want to call our attention to another group of people that need prayer, the extroverts. People like me, thank you, so many of you who called and checked on me, sent me a text or email, just seeing how I'm doing. Look, you know the love languages? I think I have all five of them. Physical touch, time, acts of service, words of affirmation. I think I just love love. I love to be loved. I love to love other people. I love crowds. I love raucous, joyous crowds. I'm looking for a crowd, any crowd, and certainly a congregation. So this morning, one of those days, once again, no confidence, monitor, no cue cards, just a camera and no congregation. I miss that and uh, long to be with you guys soon. We're learning things, right? We're learning about how to take our normal lives and put them on the altar and sacrifice our habits and patterns and our customs. We're all learning to various levels of comfort and discomfort to do that for the greater good, for the common good of our community. We're being told to wash our hands, to cover our cough, to shelter in place, to not touch our face. I was thinking earlier today, that's kind of confusing to me. I'm supposed to cover my cough, but not touch my face. I feel like Ricky Bobby, what do I do with my hands? This week I was at Best Buy and I noticed their sign out front and they called it, look at this on the screen. Here's the actual photo I took of it. Contactless curbside pickup. In this time, that's what it's come to. We want some commerce to continue. People need electronics and devices. They need appliances and things, right? But we can't touch each other. And it's just a little strange right now. I'm being a little petty and a little playful, but I just get a kick out of the word contactless. Like nobody, nobody should say that word. Nobody would say that word contactless. Say it out loud now. It's just an awkward word. Maybe no contact. I know basketball is referred to as a no contact sport. You've heard us say that the gym is going to be ready soon. We're going to be playing basketball. And I just want to tell some of you, if you drive the lane and I'm playing defense, there's going to be some contact. If there's a referee involved in the game, I'm the pastor. I'm likely to get all the calls. So there's going to be some contact. Just as basketball is not really a no contact or contactless sport, same is true with life. You're not going to get through this life untouched. You're going to be touched. There's going to be contact. You're going to get hit hard. You're going to get knocked down. When I was a child, there was a a series of children's books called Choose Your Own Adventure. And as the title of the series of books shows, that's what the young reader was able to do. On the screen, you'll see a few popular titles of books that were popular that were adapted into this series of books. And what the young reader was allowed to do, if the reader was at home and reading along and didn't like where the story was going, this young child, this person could switch. They could say, I'm going to go to page 73 for a different outcome. Or I don't like where 73 is going. I'm going to stop reading. I'm going to go to page 122. They were given this autonomy, this freedom, this independence to choose how the story would end. Do you know that the series Choose Your Own Adventure sold over 300 million copies back in the day? And I understand why they're so popular. Most of us 
want to choose a story that we can control. We want to be able to change circumstances, to alter outcomes. We want to be able to avoid adversity, to dodge disaster. We want to be, we want to have more control. Now think about that. Your mind has probably already gone there. Think about that reality in these times. How much control over things do you have? When the government and your parents or people, roommates, friends, spouse tells you to stay home, wash your hands, cover your cough, shelter in place, don't touch your face. We all are gaining this sense of this is not the story that I chose to be in. I believe that eventually everybody gets to a place in their story where they want to change the direction of it. But here's a question that I want to ask you on Palm Sunday. Here's the question on the screen. What if what feels like the end of the story is actually the middle? I want us in this series called Non-Essential to consider the essential aspect of hope, getting just a taste of it today as we look forward to Easter this coming weekend. I want us to look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And before we put it up, I know that most of us know this passage. When you see it on the screen, you're probably going to say, ah, I've heard that. Some of you could already quote it in several different versions of the Bible. But I want to get past your defenses today and ask you to consider this great truth anew. Romans 8, 28, let's look at it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This can sound like a platitude. I don't know if you've used the word platitude anytime lately, but a platitude is a statement that it sounds pleasant, but it can actually do some harm. Here's the definition of platitude. Look at it on the screen. A platitude is a remark or statement, especially with moral content that's used too easily. When you're going through something hard, when you want to change your story, when you find out that life is not contactless and you've been hit, you've been punched, when you're going through that difficulty, if someone shares something with you that's a platitude, you're going to find it to be very unpleasant. But Romans 8.28 gives us, now the choice is ours and how we believe it and how we live it out, but Romans 8.28 gives us something that shouldn't be dismissed as a platitude. It's a promise. It's a promise from God in his word. Think about the first Christians in Rome. Paul's writing to them and he talks about the hardships, but he says all things can work together for our good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. He tells us in Romans 8, and history tells us, history confirms what they were going through. They were going through persecution and hardship and famine and nakedness and sword and all kinds of various dangers. And he's saying to them, God can work all these things for our good. Can we, can we believe that? Look at the passage again. If your Bible is open on your lap, if you got it in front of you, the words we know, I looked that up in the Greek. Those two words are translated from one word and it means an unshakable confidence. It means I really am convinced of this. We know, we have this unshakable confidence because of Christ. This word we know would be translated or would be used again in Romans 8, in Romans 8, 22. 
Now look at the screen and look what is said in Romans 8.22, we know. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We know. So here's the reality that we're given. Life is hard. God is good. And I've added something here, these three words, just keep reading. Life is hard, Romans 8.22. We know God is good, Romans 8.28. He works all things for our good. But we need to just keep reading. When my daughter was little, she went through a real reading phase. She peaked at reading back then, but she loved to read. And she would read these novels where she would get very engrossed in the narrative and emotionally connected to the characters. And she would get stressed at times, so stressed, you know what she would do? She would stop reading. And I would be there next to her saying, just keep reading. Life is hard. God is good. Just keep reading. It's important for us to look at the word good in Romans 8, 28, because you see, this will be a platitude. It'll sound naive to believe it or it'll be even offensive when life gets hard. If you're going through the great difficulty and someone says to you, for God works all things together for our good. So let's hone in on the idea of good. You see, it's not our definition of good. It's God's definition of good. Six, seven years ago, I realized that my driver's license had expired. I realized this when the cop told me. So I went one day to the DMV, and when I was at the DMV, well, it turns out that I had to take the test all over again. You see, my license was badly expired. So to get a driver's license, to have a valid driver's license, I had to take the test over again. I wasn't worried. In fact, I would breeze through it. Older guy, very experienced, a good test taker. I'll be fine. And as I began to take the test, I realized there was only so many that I could miss And it occurred to me that I might be missing a few. So I prayed that God would work this out for my good. Jesus, help me in this situation. I might have even had Romans 8, 28. I might have even even named that and claimed that. At the end of me taking the test, I went up to the office, to the clerk, and handed her my examination. And she took it right in front of her and began to grade it with a red ink pen and her voice out loud. I noticed as she marked off the ones I had missed, I began counting and I realized I was right on the brink of this. I increased my prayers. God work this out for my good. Allow me to pass this test. And I realized I'm talking, I was on the brink. I could only miss one more. And she looked up at me with her red ink pen and she said to me, she goes, Mr. Green, did you, did you mean to put B for this answer? And I looked down at the paper and I thought a minute, oh, did I, did I answer B? I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to put B. And I stalled for a moment and she said, did you mean to put answer C? And I said, that's what I meant to put. I meant to put answer C. Praise God on that day, he worked this out for my good. Do you realize the worry that I had? I sat there that day as I started missing a few on the test and as she was grading my paper, as I got close to the brink of failure, I thought about my wife. I wouldn't get my driver's license. I wouldn't get it renewed. I would have to call her. She would have to come pick me up. This would be a confirmation of all the things my wife has said about my driving. But God is good. He works things out for our good. 
You see, that is how we often define good. It's our good. It, it's when the outcomes are always favorable, when there's a cancer-free report, when there's an on-flight time for our, for our plane. We like that and we think that is it. We fluctuate with our circumstances. If things are good, circumstantially, then God is good. If things aren't good, then God has not kept his promise. In fact, Romans 8, 28 is really not much of a promise. It's just an empty platitude. So this morning on Palm Sunday, let's talk about this passage, this great promise in light of what's not good, what hurts, the reality of pain. You see, there's pain and pain with a purpose. What might be the purpose? If you're being contacted, being hit hard, if you are living a story where you're not able to choose the adventure you're in, where the marriage is crumbling, the relationship is fractured, the everything, the job seems to be at risk, where the pain is too great, the trouble is insurmountable. If that's the story you're living in, let me share with you today about this promise that God gives us. Let's not twist Romans 8.28 to suit our purposes and our selfish end. Pain has a purpose. So what could it be? A couple of things that I want to give you. If you'll look at the screen, you'll see two of them. The purpose of pain could be to draw you close. And another purpose of pain could be to make you more like Jesus. When we consider this idea of drawing close, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I've lived a fairly full life, and through my years and accumulated life experiences, I can genuinely tell you that I've met several people. I know their story. I know their heart. I've met several people, know them, and they have told me, it's a part of their story, that what they thought was the worst thing turned into being the best thing. And always the common thread is God somehow, somehow using that pain to draw them closer. The second reason that pain can have a purpose is we see here in our text in Romans 8. It says this, if you'll look at Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29 says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This great passage gives us a couple of words that we stumble over, but they're really great promises. Foreknowledge, this simply means that God is not limited to some linear timetable. God lives above and outside time and space, and he sees everything at once. And in his foreknowledge, he predestined or predetermined that everything that happens to us can work out for our good. When I was a newlywed, I was young and foolish. And I engaged with my wife one night about pain tolerance, about the pain of childbirth. And we sort of got into a, a little back and forth. And she said something about men's pain tolerance. And so I did a little research. I thought, is there anything close to a the pain of a woman giving childbirth. And so I did, in my research, I found out that passing kidney stones is probably the closest thing that a man deals with pain-wise. 
I brought this research, this biology, this science to her attention. She considered it, but then she brought to my attention that that study was done by a man who'd never been through 10 hours of childbirth. She also brought out something interesting. She said that women choose to endure this pain, but no one chooses. In fact, they're forced to pass a kidney stone. There's a difference, she said, between choosing to endure pain and being forced to go through it. And you know what? She's right. She always is. But it is so true. Why can a woman endure this pain hours and hours, if need be, in labor? No man ever said, I'm so excited to pass this kidney stone. That's probably never been said by man or anyone for that matter. But a woman can go through the pain of childbirth because she knows what's on the other side. It's the joy of the possible outcome. So as we consider pain with the purpose that God uses our pain to draw us closer and to make us more like Jesus, I want to differentiate or at least ask you to think about this. It's philosophical and theological, but very practical, very helpful, I believe, to think about the difference between reason and purpose. Look at this on the screen, if you will. Reason always wants a logical explanation that will make sense. Purpose offers hope that whatever has happened, God can work for good. Many years ago, I was a part of a team of folks who we heard some tragic news in the reservoir. This was 15 years ago, and we went to the scene. When I showed up, I got a call from the family. When I showed up, I realized that the scene had gone, it had moved from a search and rescue to a search and recovery. And we knew that this man that so many people loved, that he had died in the water that evening. It took a while. We were with the family. We set up tents and we worked with the divers, the, the team of folks there, law enforcement officials, to find this man, to find his body. And I went with his best friends when the body was discovered and went back to the house to be with the family. And I'll never forget the body came up. He came up when he was about a hundred yards away from her home, from their home. And the daughter, the tender moment, the daughter in her grief, she in her, through her tears, she said, daddy was trying to come home. Look, that's just how it can be. That is how it is in the human spirit when we're searching and when we're longing, when we're hurting, when we have a loss, when we're up against a tragedy, we're looking for anything that would give us explanation that would bring some reason to it. But there's a difference between reason, having a logical explanation for why something happened and having a purpose in it. You can read in John chapter nine and also in Luke 13, a couple of different accounts of things happening bad to someone. And people ask, hey, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it his fault or his parents' fault? Why did this happen? Here's the thing. You and I, we will drive ourselves crackers if we try to find out the reason for everything. Do you know that so many times with the bad stuff, we're just not gonna know the reason, but we can know that there's a purpose, that there's a greater purpose with it. Weeks ago, I was reading an, a biography of a man named Harold Wilkie. Harold was born with no arms. And in this biography, it depicts a time when he was a little boy and he was at home with his mom and a neighbor friend of his mom's. He was on the floor writhing around, trying to put on his shirt. 
And this neighbor friend of the mom's couldn't take it anymore. And she said to the mother, why aren't you helping that poor child? And the mother, Harold Wilkie's mother, with her arms stiff at her side, gritting her teeth, it was hard to say this so hard, but she delivered these words to her friend. She said, I am helping him. Do you know that there are times in our lives when the story's not going the way we want it to, but God in his grace, it seems like he's doing nothing, but he's actually helping. And the purpose in this is he's working on our character. We're overwhelmed with the circumstances, but God's doing something deeper in his purpose with our character. C.S. Lewis speaks of this very thing when he wrote these words about God's work in our lives deep inside of us. Lewis says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. About five years ago, I preached a funeral of a friend of mine named Jody. Jody and I had not been friends for long, but we drew close and he was someone that I respect. I had a lot of admiration for him, vocationally, uh, relationally, the way he loved and led and his family in particular. He meant a lot to our church. And Jody was a picture of, of perfect health almost. He was fit as a fiddle, had never really had anything besides a common cold or headache, but he got a, he got a diagnosis. The diagnosis was cancer. The cancer was pancreatic, it was stage four. We rallied the troops. We came around them and we prayed. We prayed really hard and fervently for our friend Jody. I knew his walk with Christ. He had made a commitment to, to, for God to be glorified through this in his life. Of course, we prayed for healing. When that season came, when he took a downward turn and it didn't look good at all, I was mad at God. We stepped up our prayers but the end was near. And during this time, Jody wrote me a letter that I want to read to you today. I read it for the first time in my office five years ago. And when I got to the first paragraph or through with the first paragraph, I got up and closed the door to my office because I was crying so much. Picking that letter up from five years ago, Jody wrote this. Just looking at myself in the mirror, I can tell that my downward spiral has begun. I'm an all I'm at an all-time low of weight. I have an awkward time shaving my face. It's just pure bone. My yellow eyes remind me that bad things are settling in. This pretty much means things are gonna eventually start shutting down. There's nothing out there that makes sense for me to do to treat this that we haven't already looked at yet. The encouragement I have that my eternal life will be in heaven and that I will be cancer-free soon puts a smile on my face. I'm very motivated about what the future has to offer me, that there is a, so much reason to be excited. As I arrived at the last sentence that day in the letter from Jody, my friend, 
It ended with just three words, three words and 10 exclamation points. Jody wrote, God is good. I believe him. Life is hard. God is good. Just keep reading.